In this week's Clarifier, I speak to Talentism founder and CEO, Jeff Hunter, about the difference between hope and clarity. BlackRock CEO, Larry Fink, was recently quoted as saying that he's never before seen as much fear from consumers and businesses as he sees at this moment. He says what's needed most is hope. In our conversation, Jeff provides an alternate perspective. He shares that while hope may be helpful, it's not a strategy. What's actually needed is clarity. You're reading that quote and you're saying there's never been more fear. What we need now is more hope. And you as a business leader are sitting there and saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to go in and have more hope. Again, that's much better than you going in and having despair. It's more probable that you're going to get better outcomes if you come from hope. But I think what you can really do is just take a beat and ask yourself some questions that might help you get to clarity. Because the thing about either despair or hope is you don't have an accurate picture of reality. I invite you to listen to this episode if you're navigating a business through today's uncertain economic times. If you feel the presence of fear in the market you serve, in the teams you lead, indeed, even in yourself, this episode will give you concrete steps to understand what is creating that fear and how to turn it into clarity. Hi, Jeff. Angie, so good to be back. It's good to be back with you. Okay. So we've detoured a bit. We've been interviewing other guests on the Clarifier, but this week you're back because you just can't help it. I can't. (laughs) I'm addicted. (laughs) Okay. So this weekend you sent a bunch of us um, at Talentism uh, a note prompted by an article you read where BlackRock CEO Larry Fink is quoted as saying that what our economy needs most is hope. Um, And that hope, or or more accurately to his point, I think optimism is what drives people to spend and invest. And that fear, in the case that he's talking about of a recession, is what drives the behaviors that create the recession itself. But I think you have a different perspective, which is that hope is not enough. Um, Can you tell us what we actually do need? Sure. And again, it's so great to be back. Um, Yeah. So I think the other thing he said in that quote is he's never seen as much fear in his career. And that's saying something because Larry is a spry young 70 and uh, he, and he started BlackRock in 1988, graduated from school, I think in 76. So he's been around for a lot. He's been around for the OPEC crashes of the, of the 70s oil um, crashes. He's been around for like stagflation in the 80s. Like, so assuming he's not just speaking in hyper- hyperbole, um, what he is saying is I've never seen more fear present. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably true. I think that there's a lot of fear present just in um, in the world of business and in uh, consumers and in the world in general. Uh, and the reason I was you know, I wrote that note when I, when I read the quote is because, uh, you know, this is, this is our business. The, 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 we're in the confusion business. And, and I, the first thing I thought of is the graph and the graph. Um, what I'm going to show now is this was a graph that we used in our fundraising presentation back in March of 2022. So about a year and a half ago. 
and uh, the graph was intended to make the to make the point that confusion, the thing we're going to talk about here today, is the ultimate growth market. Um, and so I'm going to share that screen for for the viewers and for those who are uh, listening. Uh, I'm going to describe the following, which is there's a there's a, a slide up in front of us right now. And at the top, it says confusion is the growth market, all caps, the, uh, very emphatic. Of course, I'm, a, I'm biased. Uh, I'm a partisan to this, to this issue, having spent decades upon decades working on it. Um, but then in the slide, there's this thing that says complexity times chaos times speed of change equals confusion. And complexity is how difficult it is for us to sort out all the variables associated with something we're experiencing. That's not a classic definition of complexity. It's just what I meant by that word here. Chaos is the unpredictable nature of the change. And speed is how fast it's coming at you. Mm. And if you take a look at those things like how, how much is coming at you, how unpredictable it is, and how fast it's coming at you, you're going to create a lot of confusion. And so there's this graph on the slide that is basically a classic up and to the right uh, curve, which is saying, which is attempting on the x-axis to say over time, we are going to experience more and more confusion, which is the y-axis. So, um, so then what I did on the slide or what we did on the slide is we said, hey, listen, we can, we can pick any point we want to initiate this curve, human history has sort of been this increasing confusion. Uh, uh, confusion has been increasing over the course of human history. I decided to start a tech wreck because that was a formative experience for me as a founder. Mm -hmm. I had started a company, co-founded a company in the you know mid to late nineties, and thought I was going to be king of the world as a, a young person, and and uh, lost it all in the tech wreck. So yeah, that was a deeply confusing moment for me. We could have gone way back. I remember in 1987, I'm graduating from college and the stock market crashes uh, under President Ronald Reagan and I'm driving down, th down the road thinking, oh my God, what does this mean for me? We could go back to Carter getting booted from office, Iran hostage, whatever. I decided arbitrarily to pick TechRec and then I said, okay, so... The tech wreck was really confusing against these elements of complexity and chaos and speed of change, but it, it wasn't nothing compared to the Great Recession. That was just you know six, basically seven, six, uh, six, seven years later. And then you've got the Me Too movement, which was the social, social confusion. It wasn't economic, but again, it's really adding to the complexity of the environment, how people can use their mental models to navigate the world. Then you've got the pandemic. Wow, that was global. Talk about complex. Talk about um, fast. <laughs> Going from like, is there going to be a pandemic to uh, we're locked down for the next year and a half in our house? That was one month, right? Um, so the speed of that was shocking, affected every business, affected every life. Then you've got George Floyd is happening. The, that episode is happening during the pandemic, which is just a signal to a population that has long been subjugated, that they now is their time for justice. Then you've got the insurrection of January 6th. And then you've got the Great Resignation, which started really messing with um, business leaders in their mind. This was March 2022. And I put a 
question mark at the top of this saying, oh, you know, what's next? Well, what happened to be next is almost immediately after this came out was capital market wreckage, private company valuations just cratering, completely changing the fundraising dynamic for almost all the businesses we work with, impacted credit markets, impacted um, venture, impacted PE, and then, ta-da, AI. And so now AI is just completely upending everything. And upending, um, just to be clear, it's upending labor markets, it's upending economics, it's upending... So this question mark in 18 months has had another two huge punches. And we can't even predict what the next one's going to be after that, but you can assume that more and more are coming. So... I, I, I like I, I like this graph. One of the things that I want to do is put myself in the shoes of of listeners or watchers and just offer some observations as we go through this and maybe have you quickly respond to them. So yeah, great. Um, one one of the things that I notice as I'm looking at this is like, hmm, do these moments represent confusion <laughs> or do they represent important reckoning? And so I think it's worth calling out that when I hear you say confusion, Jeff, I think you mean it in the talentism definition of the word which is the experience of a delta or a gap between one's expectations and reality. So I think in all of these moments, individuals, companies, leaders, society was grappling with a change that meant the implicit inbuilt expectations for how we are with each other, who's in power, how that power gets used is different from the new reality. So it's not necessarily that movements like Black Lives Matter are confusing (laughs) in the small c English definition of the word, but they are confusing in the capital C talentism definition of the word because they're a shakeup in expectations for how we will be with each other. They represent a new reality that people are grappling with. So that's how I make sense of your label of confusion. Am I I hearing that right? Yes. So... One of the reasons I love doing this podcast is because you are such an effective translator. I mean, <laughs> this is a uh, this is water moment for me because I'm like I talk about confusion in the big C talentism uh, way every day, many times a day. So I'm just walking around going, "Well, everybody understands what confusion means." Of course, that's not true. Thank you for uh, clarifying that. I happen to believe, um, being a true optimist. Uh, not an economic optimist that just hopes the recession doesn't hit, um, that these are all good things that are very painful in the moment. Um, and so that they're good things because there is so much bias embedded in the world and in the way we think about the world and the way we think about each other that only these reckonings will help us discover those biases, bring them to a broader audience, and then actually um, get better. Or in the case of something like AI, it's a technology that could fundamentally reframe uh, our human journey and it could destroy us. Um, and so like, so I just think of confusion as the thing that is in that positive, assuming that you're dealing with it correctly, and which is one of the things we're going to talk about. Yeah. And the other thing I observe as I look at this graph is, of course, you've you know curated a selection of moments to um, to highlight here, but I do see them getting more frequent and closer together. Right. And so that builds inside of me the sort of a <laughs> growing anxiety yeah. that makes me say, okay, how do we deal with this? Um, which is what I think you're going to take us to. So so why don't you carry on? 
Great. Thank you. Uh, yes, I mean, the the entire hypothesis of this slide is we're in the right business at the right time. That may be deeply unfortunate for the human race, but for us, it's a real moment for us to bring our passion for helping people turn confusion into clarity. It's a real opportunity for us. Um, okay, so I'm going to stop sharing. And then, um, so now let's talk a little bit about why this matters. So Mr. Fink is saying, you know what we need is hope. And I want to clarify um, something. Hope is a good thing, but not nearly enough. And all hope can also be a very bad. And I was thinking about this weekend, uh, Ted Lasso, you know, hope is the thing that'll kill you. So there's two points of view with regards to hope. Hope is the thing that keeps you in the game until your luck changes. That's sort of the way I think about it. And by the way, people's faith that things will get better fundamentally activates them and keeps them more engaged in potential positive outcomes than a structured rational analysis. We are deep meaning-making animals and uh, hope attaches to meaning and it attaches to the belief that relief is on the way and in that way it's a beautiful thing. Hope is also the thing that gets us to ignore current realities, right? Mm -hmm. Because that curve, those are big things. Those had serious impacts on people's lives. If you were sitting there at whatever point on that curve hoping that confusion would just go away and a better tomorrow is coming, what that curve shows is that hope is not productive. Mm. Your localized problem may disappear, but the overall trend of living in a world that is filled with confusion, that isn't going to disappear. Our hypothesis is there's no technological innovation and no human breakthrough that is going to come around and change the course of human history in such a way that humans are fundamentally different. Like all of a sudden we're like, you know what, I've been mad at this group of people forever and ever, whether it's my family or this other group or whatever. But since I took that pill, it's all pretty clear to me. Um, <laughs> like, no, that's nowhere on our horizon. Um, what is more on our horizon is more rapid technological advancement that is going to lead to more rapid and complex changes and chaotic changes that will further inspire more confusion, more us-them dynamics, more sort of like going into what we call certainty. So hope as a strategy of like, if we just wish the bad stuff away yeah. or believe the bad stuff's going to go away, things will get better. That's not true. So yeah. I said hope is good because I don't want people to be in despair. I'm incredibly optimistic about the future. And um, maybe that's hope. Maybe that's delusion. You know, maybe that's an old guy sort of doddering off. I don't know. But like, I, I am optimistic. But I'm not optimistic because I believe things will magically get better. I'm optimistic because yeah. I think things are working the way they should as long as we can metabolize this into getting better. So what I hear in that is that hope, while it may be um, a step better than despair, is passive relative to what's actually needed to navigate the talentism, capital C, confusion that is only going to increase in pace and frequency. So yes. if hope is too passive, 
then what do we need? Yeah, and I want to be clear, um, since that pat word passive can be very loaded, sometimes passive is good. So like it, it, despair is very passive too. It's just negative passive. So I'd rather have positive passive than negative passive. But there's a huge opportunity, and I'm, and I'm speaking to everybody here, but especially to business leaders because those are the people who we work with. There's a huge opportunity here. Every time markets have been disrupted, at whatever type of market at whatever time, there are winners and losers. And the winners are the people who see the opportunity in the moment. And the losers are the people who get caught up in like, wow, the thing I cared about is going away. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so passive hope is good. It's just not enough. We need to have this way to sort of think about what we're experiencing, capital C confusion, And a way to turn that into something good, an opportunity. And that's why we talk about confusion to clarity. And that's really the whole reason we exist. Talentism is because we think this confusion thing is the big P problem for businesses. It's the big P problem for society. It's a big P problem for people. Um, And so we um, we need to bring this thing that we've been working on for so long that we have found to be very um, effective, we need to bring that to a broader audience. So let's talk for a minute about something you shared with us in your note over the weekend, which was this idea that in response to the confusion that so many of us feel with greater pace and frequency, one route is fear, but the other route is to use that confusion as fuel to get to what you've just named, which is clarity. Help us as the audience think through what is the route from confusion to clarity and how do we choose that route as opposed to what might be easier automatic, which is from confusion to fear? Yeah. Well, so first of all, while I don't totally agree with the quote, I think we can refer back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And the thing I would say is, if Larry is right and there is more fear than at any time, that is an important thing to pay attention to. Mm. It's not something to forget. And so what are we going to do with that? Do we feel more fear in ourselves? Do we feel more fear around us? Are we experiencing this more um, chaotic, complex, unpredictable sort of world happening around us? Whether that's the world of our business, the world of our teams, the world of Uh, our communities or the broader world as a whole. Yeah, so the first thing I want to talk about is, we've talked about this a little bit before, fear is a second-order consequence of experience. It's not a first-order consequence of experience. And what that means in uh, non-geeky language is we experience the world and then we get confused and then we have fear. We don't experience the world and have fear. And the reason you can say this with a fair amount of confidence is because two people can be in the exact same situation and experience either comfort or fear, and they're in the exact same situation. As someone who has done a lot of public speaking, I can say, I remember the first time I got up on stage. And when I say I remember it, what I mean is I remember being um, in the wings And then I remember someone shaking my hands afterwards, my hand afterwards, nothing in the middle. 
I'm just so happy I didn't go out there and just sort of like scream and then run off the stage, <laughs> right? Like the, 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 the terror was so profound. And uh, there are some interesting studies, like there's like fear of death and fear of speaking, right? Like it's pretty close. And any of us who have had this fear of speaking, it's this narrowing of the, like, the tunnel becomes long and you can, like, hear these weird sort of distant sounds and it's, like, sort of an out-of-body thing. And, uh, and I, was, I was in terror over that and somehow got through it. And now when I do public speaking, I, I feel some butterflies, like I want to do a good job and, you know, but... But I've done it hundreds upon hundreds of times. Well, how did that go from being fearful, a fear-inducing experience to like, eh, not that big a deal? Well, it happened because my mental models updated. Because I had all these fear, this forecast in my head based on my first mental model of I am going to be seen to be a fool. I am going to be made fun of. I will stand separate from these people. I will be the, the butt of ridicule. That's mm. all the predictions, right? And, and because like I got up maybe in fifth grade and I spoke in front of the room and people laughed at me, which, which happened. And then you're like, that sticks. Mm -hmm. And then anything that sort of pattern matches to that, then you're like, this is going to be rough. Mm -hmm. Um and so you can train your mental models over time to sort of become familiar. We all do this. Like the first time you try to make an omelet, you're like, oh my God. And then it's easy, right? Like this is just practice. This is like we're trying to take the thing we're afraid of and make sense of it in a way through practice to get to the place where we're comfortable with it. That's why fear is the second order thing, not this first order thing, because we don't want to work on the fear. We don't want it to go away and hope that the future is better. We want to actually figure out why we're afraid. And mm. we want to then figure out the why we're afraid and then figure out one of two things to do with it. We either want to um, use courage and support to get better at that thing, or we want to design so we don't get in that situation. Yeah. Okay, you know, I got to like, pause for a second to make yeah, sense yeah. of what you just said. So. So much, so many of us in our language will will commonly throw out, I'm scared of, or I'm bad at, or I find this thing scary. And I think what I'm hearing you say is the experience of that fear comes from either the unknown or pattern matching a handful of prior life experience that suggests that that thing is painful or shameful or bad or whatever it is. Right. And so the opportunity is to separate the experience of fear from the thing itself. Yeah. And then if it's worth it to you to actually go at the thing itself, <laughs> yes. because by having more lived experiences around it, which tell you, oh, I don't die when I stand up and do public speaking. That's right. There's an opportunity to gather real data from practice, from lived experience that retrains the mental model, that retrains the relationship in your brain between the thing and the emotion that gets spurred by the thing. That's right. Yes. And, and here's a really important point because this is a, a critical point of the work that talentism does. There are things in my life where I have, I have been either bad at it or afraid of it and I still wanted to be good at it. And so I figured out how to learn my way into at least being acceptable or viable at that thing. Public speaking would be an example of that. There's a lot of examples of that. 
but I had time. Like, you know, the public speaking thing, let's say that's a 15-year journey, uh, maybe 20. I've been around a long time. So that, that's a long time. Now, what are we doing as business leaders when we don't have time? Mm. So people come to me and they say, um, you know, listen, I, I basically freeze up on stage and I'm really bad at it and I need to be good at it. So I'd like to get a coach. So next week when I give a speech, I'm excellent. And I'm like, well, that ain't happening. Now there are excellent speaking, talentism doesn't do this. There are excellent speaking coaches and they can give you tips and tricks and they give you ways to practice really fast and all that stuff. So you're definitely not going to go embarrass yourself. But if your standard is you want to be comfortable and good at it, you're going to need more than a week because it takes a long time to build a new mental model on top of an old one. Remember, you never get rid of the old mental models. You never get rid of the old habits. They're hardwired in there. You got to build something better and more powerful on top of it. So that just takes, that building takes time. Well, what does a leader do when they don't have time? That's why we, you know, one of our innovations is how to use design in coaching. Mm. Not just like the work of, hey, let's talk about what's the nature of the fear, which we do. Like, let's figure out where the big C confusion is. Let's figure out what's underneath that. Let's figure out why that exists and what we're going to do about it. But also... We're talking to them about what's the design that can help us like deal with this now. Yeah. So if I am, if I have to give a speech and there's just no way out of it, as an example, then um, I'm probably just going to have to do the best I can and I need a speaker a coach and all those things to help me. But it's probably better if excellence is what's required it's probably better to go find somebody else to give that speech. That would be a design change mm -hmm. or change the context. You know, we just brought up that slide um, and that slide was in our, in our investor presentation. Well, no matter how comfortable I am speaking to broad audiences, I'm terrible speaking to investors. I have this big autonomy trigger, all this stuff we've talked about in the past. So my design for that was I'm going to record my presentation and ship it out and then take questions one-on-one -on -one in the meeting, in one-on-one -on -one meetings. Now, that took me three acts longer than just holding one presentation um, and Q&A, but it enabled me to be at my best. So that's why the design thing is, is uh, an important part of like how to think about this. So I think what I hear you clarifying for us is that um, as a leader looking inward and uh, better understanding what creates fear for you, there is an option which is to go practice that thing. And through time and, 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 and lived experience um, to gather data that helps rewire the mental model um, because the experience of doing that thing maybe goes from fearful to livable, acceptable to maybe even enjoyable. Yes. And there are other times where going at that thing and practicing it won't make sense because you don't have the time to do it, because you don't have the inclination or compulsion to do it, um, or because other people will just enjoy it more than you will and you'll enjoy other things. And so right. that's when we can bring design into the conversation and figure out ways to not make you uh, do those things, right? Not make your system dependent on you doing things that you are fearful of or live in your blind spot or whatever it might be. That's right. 
Yeah. So what we're we're a bit off topic on the fabulous Mister Fink here, but uh, but let's just like finish this. The reality of most human beings, but especially the founders, CEOs, executives, leaders we work with, is you have to be effective today and productive tomorrow. You don't get to trade them off. You don't get to say, hey, listen, I'm going to fail today in in pretty profound ways, um, but I'll just keep getting a shot at it. If you're in a a venture-backed business, as an example, you have a limited amount of cash to burn. And you probably shouldn't spend that time hitting your head against the wall against the things that you're really bad at. That is not an effective strategy for success. But at the same time, if you ignore those things, they create problems that come back and bite you in big ways later on. And so we talk about this like blind spots always create debts that you will have to pay if you're successful enough to be lucky. So like blind spots always create this thing where like, oh, we're good enough. And then later you're like, oh my God, I have to rewrite my entire tech stack because I was so blind to the fact that like our deck wasn't very good. The debts always get created if you succeed long enough to get lucky. So, so the thing that, um, the thing that we're saying is you both have to deal with the issue today And you have to design so that if you want to get better at the thing, you have runway to get better at the thing and you can get that, you can get better at it through practice without like blowing up the entire business. Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense. And let's connect it back to the conversation we started with, which is this idea that the experience of confusion, if untended, can breed fear. And fear, as um, Larry Fink would have us see, um, creates the behaviors that that actually make true the thing you're afraid of. So if you're afraid of recession, there's going to be sort of constrained economic perspective and 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 actually drive the recession. And I think what we heard you say earlier is there is something to be done about that confusion so that it doesn't become fear, so that it actually becomes clarity. So right. keep taking us on that journey, and 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 maybe you can guide us to understand. Um, I think you had some questions for for business leaders who may be listening today that could actually help them on that journey in this moment. Okay, so let's keep going on that journey. There's, I want to respond to something you said, and then let's get into the questions. Um, there's this trick of the human mind that the more we fear something, the more likely we are to make it a reality, which is just crazy. I mean, you could you could think of all the ways that human beings are different than other animals. But I don't think if dolphins have fear that there won't be tuna, they reduce the population of tuna. And yet humans kind of do that, especially when we're all working together in fear. We figure out a way to like make the thing that is really terrible happen. Um, And, you know, there's always that famous example of the person with the attractive partner who fears out of jealousy that they'll be left and then they're a miserable partner and so therefore like they drive them away. That's a classic sort of example, but we see business leaders do this all the time. They fear that there's going to be overspend, so they take their eye off the innovation engine or the growth engine and they control spend right into the ground. Um, They don't really fear there's going to be overspend. They fear they're going to lose their company. Mm -hmm. Thus, they lose their company. Um, and so the thing when you're talking about, like, we can talk our, we can fear our way into a recession. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's real. There, there. Of course, there's real macroeconomic things here. Like, I don't know. Eventually, people don't have enough money in their credit cards and bank accounts to be able to keep the consumer spending revolution going. And sure, like, I'm not an economist uh, by choice, and so I would. So uh, there's lots of things here that I don't know. But what I do know is that if I spend my weekend worried about the recession then I'm using precious attention on something I can't control. Mm. And if I do that, then I'm going to freak out about my spending because, oh my gosh, if a recession comes, then this job, and so then I reduce the spending and therefore bring on, you know, be a micro part of the macro that's bringing on the recession. We do this inside of companies every day. And so what, rather than... um let's say a leader was reading uh, Larry's or Mr. Fink's. I've never met him, so let's call him Mr. Fink. Uh, let's say you're reading that quote and you're saying there's never been more fear. What we need now is more hope. And you as a business leader are sitting there and saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to go in and have more hope. Again, that's much better than you going in and having despair. Mm-hmm. It's more probable that you're going to get better outcomes if you come from hope. But I think what you can really do is just take a beat and ask yourself some questions that might help you get to clarity. Because the thing about either despair or hope is you don't have an accurate picture of reality. Despair is an especially rough thing because you're missing all the opportunities. But hope is also a rough thing because you also may be missing the opportunities. It just feels better to do it. So... um, these questions are prompts. Now, just to be clear, I think these, these prompts um, are best done with someone else. So I'm going to be just a complete, you know, I, I was reflecting on our podcast over time, Angie, and I always try to be the dispassionate sort of person. Like, I'm not dispassionate. I, I think talentism is great, and I think what we do is awesome. And I think that we have thousands of examples of solving these kinds of problems and we're here to help. And so I think you're sort of nuts if you're not reaching out to us and asking how we, how we can help. Um, but, you know, maybe nuts is your thing. So, um, so here are the questions that, that occurred to me as, as I was sitting back myself and I was thinking, oh, you know, could there be a recession and how would I get an accurate picture of talentism's business in the middle of that. I'm a CEO too, so I've, I've got to deal with the same thing other people do. So the first thing I prompted myself is, what do I want? Let's, let's take myself out of the frame of the inevitable future that is looming in front of me. That's a terrible place to be in. That's, you know, learned helplessness and all that stuff. So what do I want? And um, it was great as I thought about that question, and I think other will, because the recession shouldn't impact what you want. Mm. There's a beautiful thing about goals. Goals should not be framed by problems, your problem. The goals may be framed by the problem you're trying to solve, but goals should not be limited by your fear. Mm. And what we have in this fear moment is one of the ways that humans make their fears into reality is they shift their goals. Mm. They shift focus. They stop like being on target and they start trying to avoid something which actually makes that thing come true. And by the way, I can't take any credit for this. This was Ray Dalio's five-step process. 
And uh, one of the great insights of that five-step process, I thought, was, oh, yeah, when you're, when you're visualizing goals, don't be thinking about problems. You will, you will be bad at visualizing goals if you're worried about other things. So just spend the time, take this moment to reorient into what do I want? What am I trying to get done here? What is the opportunity that I always hoped for? What is that thing I could visualize that's so compulsive to me and draws me to that? Yeah. So that was the, that's the first question. I think it's just you, you want to create a lighthouse for yourself in the storm of confusion. And the lighthouse is what do I want or who could I be? Like either of those things sort of frame a point in time of what does this, what is the opportunity presented to me? Um, either by the circumstances of an impending recession or not, but like don't let the recession define what you want. I, I love uh, that re-anchoring, that creation of the lighthouse. I remember in an, in an episode we recorded together a few months back, I think it was From Panic to Purpose, one of the things you asked listeners to do was reorient to meaning. And when I hear you talking about resetting on what you actually want, inside of that, I, I think, oh, it's, I mean, like I want a bag of chips, but is it going to be that meaningful to me? What is actually going to carry me through the storm? And that is the future reality that I can create that is most meaningful to me. And that is meaningful to me regardless of what today's problems are. And so that's what I hear when you say, you know, what do you actually want? Reset on your goals. Yeah. Yeah, I think if you spend time talking to people about their regrets, which obviously I do, that's, a, you know, a big part of sort of like decoding a human being. Um, a lot of the regrets, there are the regrets of the things, you know, I did. But the bigger regrets that you hear more often are the things I didn't do. Mm. And, and things like an impending recession will fade, but that regret will not. Yeah. So the like, I'm sure I had good reasons for uh, not starting that business. The good reasons will be forgotten. The regret of not starting the business will not. And so you want to practically orient to what you want and not let the, oh my gosh, here are all the th reasons I shouldn't do that, take hold. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second thing I think, it, you know, at least for me, I was reflecting on over the weekend is where am I? Um, and that's not just because I'm getting older. It was also because... Uh, I was like, well, what, what's the reality of my situation? <laughs> okay. Recessions are terrible and um, they affect real lives and, and they reduce earning power and all those things. But where am I? Like, what's the reality of my circumstance? Not what do I fear? Because, of course, even for, for me, all sorts of things come up like, oh, can we sell more? Can we do this? Can we do that? Those are, but where am I? And I did an accounting in my head, just sort of an inventory of like, all the things that are going well and all the things I'm grateful for. And in that accounting and that inventory, I was like, oh, you know what? This, this picture, this picture is a little better than I thought, mm -hmm. which of course is inevitable because the fear is, the, the fear is attempting to highlight all the ways you could fail. Mm -hmm. Right. That's why fear is an effective mechanism from an evolutionary standpoint, it's an effective mechanism to keep you lo alive long enough to be healthy to procreate, right? That's the whole underlying why would you have fear? Just 
why would it make sense as a species? Well, because it helps you run, <laughs> helps you be scared when the tiger's right near there, those kinds of things. Um, but so you want to reorient the process to your thought process to like what's actually happening in my world, what's actually happening around. Um, and then the, as part of that, I started to ask myself the question of what am I proud of? And this was a really powerful one for me because, um, you know, we, you and I have talked a lot and I've talked to a lot of people about you, you've got this, it, it's almost like in your teenage years, you build up this edifice of your own, uh, picture of yourself and your picture and like the confidence that comes from that. And the teenage edifice is sort of like tall and boisterous and confident and on super shaky foundations. Like it's really not or grounded in anything profound. You haven't lived a lot of experiences. You haven't gone through massive failures, you know, marriages, all these kinds of things. And so you may have this edifice of how amazing you are that extends into the sky and has every wing and every, you know, bell and whistle, but it's on a shaky foundation. And then I think the people who are on the journey that I'm on and you're on and so many of the people we work with are on is at some point that foundation gives out. It just can't support the weight of all that baroqueness of like all the shit that we think, like we hope people, you know, love about us and will respect and, and accept about us. And at the point that a part of the foundation collapses or the whole foundation collapses, you can either throw up another weird sort of thing or you can start working on the foundation. And the way you work on the foundation, and, and uh, you know, this really sort of struck me. There's the, the writer on The Office, and now she's an incredible actress, um, performer, producer, writer, she's incredibly talented, Mindy Kaling. But she wrote this thing in Vanity Fair. A personal I hero. I didn't know you were going to be talking about her. Oh, really? So okay. she, did you, do you remember the, Van, it was a Vanity Fair article about like how hard it is to build your confidence I, when you... I think I do remember that. When she answered an audience question, a young girl raises her hand and says, how do you build the confidence you have? Is this what you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then she wrote an article as a follow-up to that. Mm-hmm. So to me, the beauty of that, and we should find that link and put it in, in this because I just thought it was such a beautiful answer. It was like, look, you're basically acquiring experiences that cannot be destroyed. You're just building, you're creating a foundation that no matter how big the waves or strong the wind, that foundation stands. Because the more you put yourself out there, the bigger the waves come, the bigger, the stronger the wind and the people are trying to knock you down and everything. And so what's the thing that you can, you can rest upon that is unshakable, that you can build the, the, the edifice of your personality, beliefs, like presentation, everything on that. And when, to me, the way you build that edifice is you think about what you're really proud of. You think about the thing, you know, you talked earlier about meaning. You think about the things that are like, if I was to pass right now on my deathbed, I would think, yeah, I did that. That mattered. And typically what we know is it'll matter in one of two ways. You either affected people's lives, you were a help or a service to others, or you solved a problem that helped other people's, <laughs> helped people's lives, right? usually other people oriented. It won't be like, 
I had a billion dollars in my bank account. Most of the people I've read and talked to, that's not the thing when they're sort of getting into their later years. They're like, oh, that is the big thing I'm proud of. So I sat there and I thought today about what I was, or over the weekend, and I thought about what I was proud of. And it was about, you know, like the meeting we had last week about culture, where people were talking about the talentism culture and how unique it was and stuff. And I was like, yeah, I don't always feel great about my performance. I don't always feel great about my leadership, but I don't think that's going away. Like that meeting stand will likely stand the test of time of, I worked hard for something to create a place where people could unleash their potential. And that's probably not going to go away. And so I can feel a little more secure in myself as a result of that. And that security in self starts to create that mental model that helps you weather the recession storm, the fear, right? It's not, it's not saying just hope it doesn't happen or believe in yourself, right? Those sort of aphorisms. It's sort of like, what, what should you be proud of? And what is the thing that you should believe you believe about yourself that no matter what happens, there's a recession or et cetera, that thing is still true about you. Mm-hmm. And then the final thing is, um, once you get to that grounded sort of spot by those questions, it's like, what excites you about the future? Because no matter what, what we can all say with, with a lot of confidence is you are probably failing to predict the thing that will be the, the worst thing that's coming your way. And you'll be equally bad at predicting the best thing that's coming your way. Mm-hmm. You're going to be bad at predicting both of those things. But the fear is telling you, don't worry about the best thing that's heading your way. Worry about the worst thing that's heading your way, which of course is more likely to bring the worst thing into existence. So, um, so I think this thing of like orienting to like, well, what could be the best thing that's coming my way? Again, this isn't a hope strategy. This is like, just get to clarity, just get to understanding the probability of bad and the probability of good. In a, un, in a big, complicated, chaotic situation may be roughly equal, and you just don't know. And so you should go into the future more with a sense of an explorer of the possibility of the opportunity as opposed to a protector of the thing that you worry might go away. You know, even though some of these questions feel big, spacious, potentially even existential, as I hear you work yourself through them, thank you for going through the exercise this weekend, they really do feel grounding. And so when I think about the difference between this idea of hope, which maybe passive is not the right word, but it feels a little ephemeral, right? I I believe that there could be a great future, but I have no idea what it is. (laughs) Relative to clarity, which feels very grounded in what do you want? What is that North Star that is going to propel you through the up and the down because it's really meaningful to you? Where are you? What do you have? What resources are available that you can point to that will allow you to move forward in that direction? What are you proud of? right? What is, what do you know is real about you and what you've built or what you want to build that's actually worthwhile and what excites you? So what's going to create momentum and fuel in the engine? These things actually feel like a very powerful way to take this idea of hope, which is optimistic and make it practical. Yeah. So I I love the way these questions came together. Awesome. Well, good. Well, thank you for that validation because (laughs) no matter how many times I do this, 
Yeah, you and I have talked about this. It's like speaking into the void. And then some <laughs> y'all meet someone like a year later and they're like, oh, I listened to that podcast. And you're like, you did? Uh, wow. Okay, great. So thank you for being the immediate feedback on that. <laughs> I know you live for my validation, Jeff. Pretty bad. Well, not just yours, but uh, yeah. All right. Well, thank you for this. Um, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you were hoping to get across this morning? Yeah, you should reach out to us. <laughs> you should reach out to Talentism. <laughs> Did I not say that? Did I not get that across? Oh, yeah. That was good. No, I appreciate that. And I think one of the things I like that you've been doing every time we sit down together for these conversations is um, offering a practical set of questions or reflection exercise. Um, and I couldn't agree with you more that doing those alone, um, it, it, it can not only be um, challenging because it can feel like a new muscle to exercise, but it be, can be hard to see yourself clearly yeah. in the exercise. That's right. Um, and so what's been so compelling to me when I sat on the client side before joining Talentism um, was having the support as I did this kind of self-reflection and interrogation and designing better for myself um, was having someone who could help me see myself clearly in the moments when I needed compassion to do it and in the moments when I needed to be able to own my greatness. <laughs> Good. And, and so that is, um, that is the reason I really agree with the push that you're giving folks who might be listening, which is reach out. Um, because, yeah. because with a partner, you can see yourself more clearly and with that clearer picture of yourself, you can do more than you thought you could. Yeah, very well stated. Much better than I did. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Angie. Great to see you again. Thank you.